Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am very happy to be here today with Daniel Boyarin, who I consider to be a giant in the field of academic Talmud. Um, that's actually putting it mildly because he combines many different disciplines. Uh, he's written many books, um, books on the rabbis, books on comparative religion, books of uh, theory, and uh, books on Midrash and how to interpret texts. Uh, when I was a freshman in college at Brown, I read his Carnal Israel, and uh, it makes the argument, uh, if memory serves, that this uh, anti-Semitic phrase uh, coined by the church should actually be a, a source of pride for Jews and something that has a kernel of truth in it that we can that we can find value in. So welcome uh, and thanks for being here, Daniel. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I just want to correct one thing from your introduction. I would never use the term source of pride. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, would 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 just say that for myself, it it made me feel proud. So let's let's uh, let's let the record show that uh, I I feel um, when I hear versions of the criticism of Judaism that we are too carnal, uh, too materialistic, too legalistic, etc., um, not spiritual enough. I have come to to hear in those criticisms a kind of backhanded compliment. Interesting. Yes. Okay. In general, just on this, and maybe this will get started in some way. My experience over the years, over the decades that I've been working, is that frequently people that we think of as anti-Semites and some genuine anti-Semites really have a good, have good sharp eyes, and and uh, characterize different aspects of Jewish culture or. Jewish religion um, accurately, it's just the values that need to be reversed. And in mm. that sense, I agree with you. It says I just bridle at the uh, at the pride bit. But fair enough. Um, I'm actually curious if you think that that's a dafka or a lav dafka. In other words, uh, for the listeners that don't speak Hebrew, does the does the fact that one might hate a group in in this case uh, Jews. Um, does that give someone a kind of weird, perverted insight, um, or is it just incidental? No, there are people who hate Jews and don't know anything. But some of the greatest haters of Jews, uh, we're, we're talking about Augustine here, he put in his homework. He could have gotten a PhD in Jewish studies. <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking, of course, jocularly when I say when I say yeah. I actually am fascinated in this, and I think it's it will be a kind of microcosm for some of the the things that I want to get into, like the the fact value distinction, which is obviously a huge topic in nineteenth century thought from Max Weber. Um, how is it that somebody can get a PhD, so to say, in Judaism and also violently hate Jews? Like, what is your sort of mental model for the relationship between the keen descriptive sense and then the the sort of distorted normative sense, if, if in fact uh, we want to say it's a distortion rather than a, a machlok at l'shem shemayim, an argument <laughs> rooted in, in genuine uh, search for truth? Um, it's a very interesting question. I really haven't paid much attention to that question in a sense. My sort of seat of the pants assumption has been that that the serious 
opponents of the Jews, particularly in the Christian world, that there are two reasons why they, they, they end up knowing so much. One is that Jews are their problem, are a problem for them. And I'm not talking about the Jewish question. I'm talking about the, the, the Torah was clearly given to Jews. Jews, by and large, have tried to figure out ways of, of, keeping, um, of, of keeping the, the rules, I mean, which has not been easy frequently uh, for, many, for many reasons. Um, and um, Christian um, thinkers, intellectuals, theologians, have have been hard pressed to explain or even to understand and to the extent that we're ascribing good faith the rejection of the um, so-called laws uh, of the of the of the Torah on their part so that has unleashed a great deal of close attention and uh, I think generally an accurate, um, or frequently, not generally, but frequently, an, an accurate understanding, uh, which then has to be discredited. And, uh, and part of the discreditation comes out um, um, as... Um, anti-Judaism at best, anti-Semitism at worst, right? Um, the other um, side of it is, I think that um, that sometime around the fourth century A.D., um, non non-Christian Jews. <laughs> um, and Christians um, uh, assert very different intellectual traditions um, that uh, normative Christian thinking is largely, not completely, but largely come under the influence of essentially Greek ways of thinking about the world. Um, that are predicated on um, a correspondence between physical and metaphysical realities. Um, and uh, uh, the group of Jewish leaders that we call the rabbis, and they didn't come from nowhere, you know, they had uh, they were they had predecessors. They didn't come from nowhere, although they were, in some ways, a new movement. Um, were largely in opposition to those uh, dualist ontologies, dualist epistemologies that ended up characterizing not all but a large chunk of of Christian. Uh, thought, including notions of the elevation 
of spirit over over flesh. The Talmud is characterized in large parts by a dialogical spirit. Um, I think certainly for moderns and for myself, um, one of the things that's so captivating about it is less the particular conclusion, be it halachic or otherwise, and more the the flow and the surprising twists and turns in a sugya. Um, but obviously the people engaging in this dialogue have a certain trust, a certain commitment to one another, even um, in the context where, let's say, the schools of Hillel and Shammai vehemently disagree on matters of first principle, they still ultimately marry uh, with one another. And so sociologically, this this seems to be a community, um, and the community is what enables the dialogue. You don't find that... Um, as much at the level of text between Jews and Christians, um, at least the, at least when we look back, the the Talmud doesn't um, offer a dialogical spirit towards followers of Jesus um, and vice versa. So there is a question in this, if you accept the the description, and the the question is something about pluralism and its limits. Um, dialogue seems to be such a beautiful, fruitful model for engagement, and yet clearly. Um, we're romanticizing if we think that it has no boundaries. So what can we learn from the fact that this pluralism didn't go all the way, um, both as a matter of history and also for ourselves when thinking about pluralism as a model? Um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think pluralism is, the, um, is the, the issue or the rubric under which it needs to be thought. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, in, I've cited in the past, I forget exactly where, I imagine in my book, Socrates and the Fat Rabbis, um, texts that, that stage uh, that lack of pluralism uh, very directly. You know, when a certain uh, Yaakov um, comes into the, uh, and, and almost everybody named uh Yaakov and his, in certain strata of uh, Talmudic writing are Christians, right? This Yaakov is James, so um, Yaakov become you know like if you would, if you would be telling a uh, Polish story and somebody named Moshe came in, you'd know, um, right? So uh, it's not not an absolute rule, but many many stories that take place in the Galilee that are told in the you know, early rabbinic literature are about uh, disciples of um, and Jesus. And uh, so he comes in and he gives a brilliant answer to a halachic question that is being uh, discussed in the Bet HaMidrash that day. Right? And the one of the insider sages there says, if he were on our side or with us, we would accept that brilliant answer, which was in perfect Midrashic form. But since he is outside, we won't. So, so it, it, this pluralism is just simply not the issue. There's no pluralism. I mean, that's 
that's for the Hartman Institute, you know. <laughs> I guess I guess where I'm going with the question is um, what explains why some debates were considered to be for the sake of heaven and you as an opponent of me are still considered to be a worthy adversary with whom I can collaborate, but other opponents are outside the pale? Is there an inevitability to that or a contingency to it? And um, if if a contingency, what I know this is sort of more of a fantasy, but what is the subjunctive history of uh, of the world in 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 which case the anti-Semitic Augustine uh, is part of the fold, and that's a conversation that we have rather than one that just ends up in mutual distrust. Yeah, no, it's um, those are very very interesting questions. They're things that I've thought about. But uh, not re- I don't really have um, answers. Putting aside the question of pluralism for the moment, um, I, I do think that um, at, at certainly in the Greek patristic world, right? I'm going to which which was certainly dominant in the in in you know in the third fourth fifth century. Um, the idea took hold that that there is one knowable truth about God and one knowable correct interpretation of the of the of scripture of the of the Torah. Um, Origin, mid third century. Um, Alexandrian uh, and then Caesarean genius. <laughs> I'd say, he, 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 you know, he might have been um, um, the smartest person in the world um, up to um, Derrida, let's say. Um, um, Origen set, sets this out very, very clearly. Jesus was resurrected, came to the world, taught the disciples how to read the Torah, namely that it was all about him. That's explicitly what it says. And there are hints of this already, and more than hints, there's... Um, preliminary form of this claim in the Gospel of Luke already. Uh, And therefore, all who are disciples of Jesus have learned the one correct way to read the Torah, namely as being uh, about Jesus. And the, the, the one correct uh, mode of theological truth. Truth about God. Um, Origen, despite being um, 50 years after his death, um, kicked out of the kicked out of the canon and uh, called uh, a heretic, was the dominant intellectual figure. I would argue that formed late antique and Byzantine. Christian thought, at least in the the 
uh, orbit of the uh, Gre the Greek writing and thinking world. So, um, which is where things like the Council of Nicaea took place, of course, and uh, um, I, I think that the rabbis um, explicitly, virtually explicitly, rejected the premise that there is a knowable truth about the nature of God and a knowable uh, correct interpretation of the Torah vis-a-vis -vis, um, halacha. Right? So it's not, it's not even so much, or uh, perhaps not even at all, the contents of the, the different interpretations so much as the very epistemological foundations that end up uh, dividing um, dividing patristic from mm. yeah so so it's a methodological confrontation that just can't be reconciled because either you take a skeptical posture or you take a dogmatic one, but there's not really an interesting conversation to be had between the two. Exactly. Exactly. And clearly there are, and, and then there's this, the sociological issue. Are you in, in some way with us or not with us, right? Um, and uh, what precisely the parameters uh, of that are is hard to say, but at least basically, I would say the commitment to uh, mitzvot, mitzvahs, the commandment, the commitment to to the um, uh, to the ongoing and eternal um, uh, obligation to fulfill the Torah as best we can, right? <laughs> In light of what you're saying, I mean, I hadn't thought of this before, but I'm gonna allow me to put forward a somewhat uh, risque interpretation of the mitzvah, which is... If we were to know God and to know God's Torah, we might we might actually come to the conclusion that we could graduate from doing the mitzvot, um, much as Christian supersessionism posits. But in the absence of this certainty at the level of God and Torah, the mitzvah is a kind of compromise, a kind of best we can, to, your, to use your phrase, um, that exists in lieu of orthodoxy, and so would you accept the would you accept the position that rabbinic Judaism is in its inception orthoprax rather than orthodox, and that that is in fact the the dividing line between Jews and Christians, or do you do you see an orthodoxy in Judaism as well? Because no, I don't see any orthodoxy in Judaism, but I'm not even sure that orthopraxy is the you know because we we fulfill mitzvot by speaking we fulfill mitzvot by doing, we fulfill mitzvot by not doing things. I don't know, orthopraxy, orthopraxy doesn't seem quite to, 
it it well it certainly doesn't capture the um um emotional content of you know the um uh, affective content of keeping mitzvot which is uh you know which is joyful i think there's a there's a more uh modern notion of the mitzvah as do this because god wants you to do it but I, if i'm hearing you correctly it almost feels like you're doing the mitzvah not because you know for sure that it's what God wants, but rather in the absence of knowing what God wants, do this. Something like that. You know, the um, uh, uh, one of the most wonderful um, stories, Maiselach, that I've heard that took place very much within my adult life my brother used to sit for a long time in in the yeshiva on East Broadway, you know, which was Ramosha Feinstein's Zechot Zarek Lebrocha's yeshiva. Um, and it had evolved by the time my brother was sitting there into a, I don't know how to say it, um, less than institutionally, formed um, um, but a place that many people would come I mean, many people 10 20 uh, would come every day and sit and study and there there Reb David Feinstein Zetzal who's um, a giant the son of Reb was was the Rosh Hashiva he had a little uh, shiur every day with about uh, 10 guys that my brother eventually started to sit in on but what my brother describes is that there was one man who used to come there every day, absolutely, uh, you know, a frummer, uh, walked walk like a, 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 a mitzvah keeper looked, and he was, he was. But every once in a while, this man would get up and go to the wall and say, um, in Yiddish, I can't. Uh, remember how to quote it in Yiddish, but I don't do what God wants me to do. I do what I think God wants me to do. Right? I think that that epistemological gap that we don't really have God's mind, you know, Paul claims we have the mind of God, right? But we don't. We don't have the mind of God. Obviously, the interpretation of the Rambam Maimonides is uh, a matter of deep dispute and contention amongst his various readers. But um, there's certainly a skeptical streak within the Rambam, especially at the level of metaphysics, which is that we, we can't say anything true about God that seems completely consistent with this rabbinic paradigm you've laid out. At the same time, we have the 13 principles of faith. We have uh, his arguments for the Tame HaMitzvot, the, the reasons for why you should do the mitzvot. And if you're doing them for different reasons, then you're not really an enlightened Jew. Um, how do you think about squaring the circle of these sort of two Maimonideses, the, the rabbinic Maimonides and then the more, if you will, dogmatic uh, sort of conclusive Maimonides? I'm going to say something very chutzpahdik, and, uh, and and I say it um, 
with as much humility as I can muster. I love the Yada Chazaka, <laughs> you know, Maimonides' halachic work. I love the tradition of, of learning it, which is essentially a tradition of, of undermining it, right? Because the Maimonides, the Rambam, wrote without giving his sources and without giving his arguments on purpose, because he wanted it just simply to become a halachic compendium. But I think five minutes after it came out, people started, uh, Jewish scholars started trying to figure out, well, what are his sources and how is he interpreting them? And that became uh, one of the major aspects of halachic study uh, right, up, right up to now. So I love that aspect of the Rambam. Um, I am less than persuaded by the Aristotelian philosophical, metaphysical, even anti-metaphysical um, aspects of it. And uh, that just means that I um, probably have not yet seen the truth. You know when 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 the Rambam says that uh, that the um, stories in the Talmud are homilies and allegories uh, never really happened, you know, um, I think if any of it happened, it all happened, and it's meant to be taken on on its own terms. Hmm. Well, I mean, nothing you said sounded too chutzpahdik to me, but maybe I'm going to set you up to say something chutzpahdik and you can decline. But um, do you think if Judaism is and Christianity are a kind of spectrum and Christianity is, um, on the, per your comments on origin, more of the conclusive side of the spectrum and Judaism is more on the inquiring side of the spectrum, would you say that in a weird way Maimonides is closer to the Christian side? I would and I have. Okay. <laughs> Although I usually, I usually say, I define him as a halachically observant Muslim. Mm. But between Christianity and Islam, do you, do you see uh, a difference there in terms of the conclusiveness uh, or are both equally conclusive uh, and, and stand in equal relationship to Judaism vis-a-vis this idea of inquiring versus, uh, versus the creed? First of all, we've got to stop talking about Judaism because, because I'm talking about a particular period and a particular community of Jews from, let's say, from the first to the sixth centuries uh, AD that, that we call the rabbis, right? Who, they're, they're, I think their uh, um, epistemological perspectives were simply undermined by the influx uh, of uh, of um, scholastic um, uh, uh, thinking and metaphysics and, you know, systematization that 
that became, but 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 it's still Judaism afterwards. It's, I mean, it, it, either that or Judaism has no no historical meaning, right? You know, right. I get I get the point. I think I think I'm using rabbinic Judaism and Judaism somewhat interchangeably because I do see a through line, even if let's say it gets diluted. Um, but I, I'm also speaking as a as a practicing believing Jew, whatever that means, rather than let's say as a historian or an academic. But I. I guess like the mushal, the the parable that I go back to with with these kinds of questions is um, you know, Daniel Liebeskind, um, I've given this example before on the podcast, uh, when he started off his career, he was making very tiny avant-garde anti-sculptures at the Biennale and nobody knew he, who he was, but he was well celebrated um, by a kind of small coterie. And, you know, now... Um, he's got these grand, uh, these grand buildings, the New World Trade Tower, for example, in which only 4% of his original blueprint has actually come to be part of the building and the other 96% are, are the result of compromises with zoning laws and finances and, and all the, uh, the rest you can imagine. And in the industry, 4% is considered a success. We still call it a Liebeskin. And so... Um, by analogy, I think that if the rabbis managed to um, transmit 4% of their original vision, let's say 2,000 years later, I, I think that's still something to marvel at and, uh, and worth calling, calling it Judaism. Or, you know, um, e- even though, of course, the, the 96% you can attribute to other influences along the way. What a question of influences. Well, uh, there's always... Um, a cultural contact, but uh, and I agree with you. I had never heard this idea, uh, but uh, I'm I'm perfectly happy to call four percent. Uh, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu. I mean, and there is some profound continuity, continuities of sensibility and practice, and uh, you know, I'm the sort of Jew who lives more in the 5th century than I do in the 21st century. So, you know, um, it's like uh, somebody once said um, uh, that he sees himself, uh, this was well before Trump, as the only true Republican because he goes back to Abraham Lincoln for his ideas and and not to Herbert Hoover. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Um, fine, but I, but I, but to the extent that I that I am speaking as a kind of, I don't dare call myself a historian, but uh, describer of different of of different uh, um, ways of thinking at different s- stages of Jewish intellectual life. I think that there was really a, um, a, a revolution, a watershed. Um, it is partly signaled by the lack of respect, not lack of respect, but lack of of taking seriously um, Agadah on the part of the Geonim. You know, they, uh, they dismiss, essentially, um, and um, uh, and uh, I don't see any evidence within the, the Talmudic texts 
that the agada parts are you know are are marked off to be skipped or or read on Shabbos after the chant or you know then um, so I th- I think in just speaking in terms of literary phenomenology or something of this sort I'm not sure what phenomenology means but um, but I mean just looking and trying to describe f- phenomena. There's very little reason to think that the Agadah in the Talmud is um, separated off, let alone, um, you know, uh, uh, demoted uh, vis-a-vis the halachic. Um, so that that's that's I think. Um, the various ways that the Geonim and later to a certain extent the Rishonim that followed them, not all, um, uh, discarded the Agadah um, is a crucial shift, an overturning of some essential characteristics of the uh, intellectual life of the rabbis. So, just for the listeners, the the Agadah is the narrative or the story, and the and the halacha is the the law. Um, I'm curious how this sort of dialectic between the narrative and the legal maps on to the posture of skepticism versus conclusiveness. Do you see Agadah as more fitting as a form to inquiry? Um, and that essentially the law without without the Agadah represents almost in a weird way, again, a, a move towards that origin perspective where in its own way, uh, Judaism becomes too conclusive and, and not inquiring no. enough. No, no, I don't think so. Okay. That's, that's uh, sort of Bialik language, you know, that's what... Yeah. And um, no... I don't think so. So think, help me understand what what is lost with the suppression of the Agadah and what you think the Agadah is doing um, in its in its moment. I, I I imagine the Talmud as serious exploration of significant topics topics that were highly significant, even central for the rabbis, the classical rabbis, and, um, and, and remain so. And the interweaving within the sugiya, frequently enough, of halakha and um, agadah make up the fabric of the explorations of those of those uh, topics, and if you reduce the Talmud to a law book, you know, with some nice stories attached, and I'm exaggerating, of course, uh, you you're actually missing the deepest levels at which uh, the at which the Talmud is functioning as a. Um, a work of, of of thinking. Let me let me give me an example. Can I can I give you an example of a, a 
uh, the text that I've been thinking about a lot because I was just I just came from a conference um, yesterday actually from a conference in Antwerp. Absolutely, I love examples. In 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 the tractate Ketubot, and I'm not going to give exact references because I didn't prepare to do that. Um, in in tractate Ketubot, the the references will be easy to find afterwards. Um, there, it, the as most Talmudic passages do, is a, a passage what we call a sugya that begins with a little piece of the Mishnah, which is generally speaking um, a series of controversies about practice. So this Mishnah is concerned with the question of whether. A spouse, and I say a spouse advisedly here because it explicitly talks about wives and husbands equally in this in this matter, um, can compel the other spouse to uh, move to the land of Israel, right? And as I say, it explicitly talks about whether a um, a wife can compel her husband, a husband his wife, and they're both equal in this particular, with respect to this particular law or this particular um, norm. It, uh, it goes on for a bit with page, page and a half of discussion of the details of this, this Mishnah and, and uh, um, for practice. And then moves into uh, uh, via a kind of um, switching point uh, relay a story about two rabbis in Babylonia, Rabbi Zera and Rav Yehuda, his teacher. Now, Rabbi Zera wants to go live in the Holy Land, but he knows that his teacher, Rav Yehuda, is implacably opposed to anyone leaving Babylonia to go live in the Holy Land, right? Um, his reasons are not completely um, um, explicit or clear, but nonetheless. So the, the younger man, Rabbi Zera, um, doesn't go to visit his teacher. We don't know for how long because he doesn't want to hear from him explicitly that he shouldn't go live in 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 Eretz Israel and he he ups and goes um, without asking permission because he suspects the permission would doesn't suspect he's pretty sure the permission won't be given and so he doesn't want to um, openly rebel he just doesn't go to visit his rab his rabbi his teacher and leaves for the Holy Land. This then follow, is followed by 
an explanation of why people might be opposed to themselves or other Jews going to live in, in, in the Holy Land. It involves a story in which the Jews ended up making three oaths. One oath is, and, uh, is not to go en masse to the Holy Land from um, the rest of the world until God gives explicit permission of his desire that they do so. There are two other uh, uh, similar oaths and then three more. And, and, and you know, I'm not teaching the passage. So I, mean, I just want to give the, this basic structure. And then the whole sugya ends with extravagant praise of the, of the Holy Land. You know, one cucumber would feed an entire village for a week. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the cows give so much milk that one cow is enough for the whole Galilee, etc. You know, I, I'm, I'm making these up and maybe they're somewhat, but it, things of that nature. What do we do with a text like that? Right? First of all, if you just look at the halachic part, it's interesting. It has implications for gender relations, which are highly significant. It uh, does imply a value in living in the in the Holy Land, and in, in, in fact, um, within it is embedded a statement uh, that um, everyone should always live in the Holy Land, you know, I mean, how, how, how normative that was meant to be, or an exaggeration, but certainly the value. Now, this is where the dialogicality of the text takes place, in a sense, because the, that very normative um, discussion, but, but, it, but it's already, it's already, um, multi-voiced on, on the halachic level, is then played out on the narrative level, first with the uh, story of, of, of Rabbi Yehuda and um, Rabbi Zerah, where we explicitly see a major figure, Rabbi Yehuda is a major central figure, saying it's forbidden to go live in the Holy Land, right? And and then this is followed with a, a this uh, fascinating uh, wild legend of the Jews having taken oaths not to go or not to go on mass or not to seek sovereignty in the Holy Land until uh, until the Messiah comes, and then this uh, amazing uh, fant phantasmatic, fantastic praise of the vegetables and the, 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 the cows and, and, and everything in the Holy Land. If you just read the halachic part, you learn, you learn stuff. 
you know, you learn. <laughs> but if you read the Halakha and the Agadah together, the whole discourse is enriched and um, and um, it's it, it's it shimmers. It shimmers with ambiguity. Um, it's like it's like yeah, I always think of it as being like the northern lights somehow, you know that that, uh, that the text um, glows, and I'm sure my account of it today has not um, led to the uh, to an experience of how it glows uh, for um, all of you. Uh, Inter alia. It ends up being uh, the center justification for um, for uh, religious anti-Zionism. Now, disclaimer: I'm not asserting nor um, denying my identification with this. I'm just teaching about it right now. Because those those three oaths that Israel took, and especially the first one, not to go en masse to Eretz Israel until the Messiah comes, and, and not to seek sovereignty there, is of course the ideology of, of the groups that we call the Natori Karta, um, um, the uh, Satmar Hasidim, other, other, uh, certain other Hasidic groups um, in particular, and uh, indeed most, most Orthodox rabbis um, up to the 20th century and into the 20th century um, based opposition on Zionism uh, to uh, those uh, uh, passages, but then, what are you going to do with a normative statement from the first part that says, "In indeed and forever, everyone, every Jew, even though it doesn't say that, but it means every Jew should live in the Holy Land." Right? Well, what I would say is that the agadot at the end, the phantasmatic agadot about the the cucumbers that feed whole villages and uh, and suggest to us perhaps that the holy land that we're supposed to live in is the the holy land that's going to come and after um, after the Messiah. In fact, I mean, I would suggest this as a, as a reading. I'm not paskening halacha or you know deciding or anything and that the, the, the so that the amazing stories in praise of the holy land that come at the end are are a kind of key to sorting out when it is uh, when when the oath not to go there is valid and when it will be unequivocally valid for um, um, all Jews to go there. So my my point is 
uh, and this is to answer your questions, are, and I know it was way too long an uh, answer, but my point is that without the Agadah, the, the halacha is truncated. It's truncated as, as a document of deep thought, profound reflection, um, sometimes unpleasant for us, sometimes very, very exciting and, um, and lovely for us as moderns. Um, but we're not reading the Talmud if we're not reading the Halakha and the Agadah together. So I would, I would definitely agree with that, um, and it resonates. Um, curious if you think that just as the Rishonim and their sort of intellectual descendants overstate the Halakha relative to the Agadah, do you think that the Enlightenment Jews... <laughs> Uh, the assimilated sort of and liberal Jews overstate the Agadah relative to Halakha because often when you go to non-traditional yeshivas, you get a ton of Agadah and um, rarely get Halakha or get Halakha presented largely for its Agadic value, its moral or literary value, but not for the idea that law itself might be a, an important structure uh, for living out the Jewish destiny. Look, I'm on the side of mitzvahs, but uh, um, and in the keeping of mitzvahs, but uh, just as long as there's a lot of Talmud, um, you know, it's going to be okay. God says, uh, forever let them read my Torah. Um, for extraneous reasons, for from reading it for extraneous reasons, they will come to read it uh, for its essence. So I'm in favor of anybody who's who's reading and teaching uh, um, texts, and uh, you know, and, and everybody, all Jews do mitzvahs. The question is some. Do more, some do less, some, some will call themselves orthodox. You know, I think my question is less about criticizing people as individuals or groups and more about this this very subtle point that you're making that halakha and agadah belong together. And yet um, at the level of culture, we seem, we seem not to get it right. At least I'll, I'll say that from my point of view. I think we find... We find pockets where you get a ton of halacha and and very diminished halacha, but also vice versa. And so, um, what is the model for teaching and living the two together? And what are like what are the models for success? What's the theory of change for actually returning to this integration? And uh, and why are we in a position where um, not just we've gone halakha crazy, so to say, but we've all, I think, also gone a gutta crazy um, uh, on the other side of it, I I'm willing to say. I don't know. But I know that if we stop as a, as a community, as a culture, if we stop learning and practice 
Torah and mitzvahs, and I'm not speaking from uh, the point of view of what God wants or what God doesn't want. I'm speaking as a cold stone sober um, student of culture. If we stop doing these things, then we'll stop being. Then we'll stop being being uh, 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 being Jews, and the Jews will stop being. And uh, you know, I'll be gone. Um, by then, um, I think it would be a loss for the world and a loss certainly for for us. I'm sort of skirting around your question. I, it's it's all good. I wanna I wanna focus us on some other questions. So, well, I, th- I think that's that's good. Um, so, you've been a teacher of Talmud uh, for your career, um, and you've done so as a professor which is a unique position, obviously, uh, especially when you take a macro view of uh, the history of teaching and studying Talmud over the past, you know, 2,000 years. Um, There are certain ways of teaching in the academy and writing in the academy, um, both because of disciplinary uh, norms, sort of soft and hard, but also in terms of the students that you interact with. I'm curious, what have been the great benefits um, and advantages of being positioned in academia, and what have been the the what has been the cost in terms of the way that you, in your neshama, so to say, um, would would like to come to these texts? And maybe there is no cost, and I'm I'm projecting here. Well, let's put it this way: I would say that the benefits have far outweighed the cost, because. Um, and not because of the sort of objective view from no, you know, view from nowhere idea that characterized academic scholarship until, but but rather because uh, the contact with um, with the views from a lot of somewheres <laughs> has 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 constantly constantly opened. Opened my mind, opened my my heart uh, uh, to um, um, riches riches of meaning, um, joy and trouble. Uh, that uh, you know. So uh, so I I my experience has been frequently that I have learned the most from those who come with the least background because and and I'm not this is not unique to uh, to learning of Torah or Talmud but but, but I've experienced it very very the the least professional what the French call professional deformation that one has uh, the, the more possibility of of seeing new things um, and new richnesses in in, in the um, so um, but I'm frequently envious or somewhat envious or have a feeling of um, some kind of inauthenticity when I, you know, 
visit one of the great yeshivas or see the way they live or, you know. Um, there, there, there's a kind of nostalgia. Nostalgia, but, but far overweighed by... Uh, I'm not sure that the way I've taught... Um, you know, at the University of California would fully qualify as um, academic in, 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 in certainly in, you know, but we got, we got permission in a sense uh, between on the one hand deconstruction, uh, which I'm not going into details obviously, but in a sense taught us um Again, that there is uh, no one correct and disinterested interpretation. And on the other hand, um, the the joys of ethnic identifications, and I'm using ethnic very broadly here to include a whole, um, that, that we learned so the postmodern turn in academia has in some some strange way allowed for um a greater embrace of one's particularism as a as a basis for rigor um it's it's closed the gap in a, in some way between let's say the yeshiva and the academy so do academics need a theology implicit or explicit um, even even a la- even in even a lack of theology, but in a deliberate way, um, when studying texts generally, but especially when studying texts that others deem to be scriptural or sacred, and uh, and how does one how does one come to sort of a theology or a method? Um, you know, once we recognize that there's a part of it that is unchosen and rooted in our particular inheritance rather than um, something that you can just sort of close your eyes and uh, and draw up from, from the view from nowhere? You know, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm rather hostile to the notion of theology insofar as it implies a kind of systematic metaphysical and if it's really theology, then it's a, a you know a systematic. Uh, so I, I, you know, and I think this is equally true of of study inside and study outside, as it were. I'm not. You, you need a a passion on the one hand. Uh, I think uh, you know. Um, and on the other hand, um, a, a desire to to not get things wrong. Notice I didn't say to get things right, but um, so the the study of Greek grammar and historical background and. Persian words and manuscript readings and all those things that characterize, um, you know, academic philological scholarship is 
necessary to reduce at least the margins of gross error. Right? Uh, uh, you know, um, Gerard Man Manley Hopkins, who was one of my absolute favorite poets, um, has a poem about uh, seagulls, I think, if I remember correctly, on the water uh, in the morning. Uh, and um, he, refer he refers to them as the minions of the morning, M-I-N-Y-O-N. Right? No, it's almost irresistible for a Jewish reader to to think of of of, of guys with black and white talisim and 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 fillin, you know, and it goes so nicely with the black and white plumage of the of the uh, of the the birds, you know, and, and and of course for Hopkins, it, this is a religious image. I mean, it's deeply, deeply, profoundly religious Catholic. And we, can we could play with that in some kind of a reading practice, I, I suppose. But the that part of that commitment to not getting things wrong, would say it's almost impossible to, to imagine that in the the English of Hopkins' time, late 19th century, um, in his consciousness, in his vocabulary, that minions, even minions of the morning, would. Um, so we can do it, but I think when we do need to know the epistemological level on which claims are being made. Um, so um, I guess th that's, uh, you know, th th that balance, that commitment, which I don't think is foreign to the world of the yeshiva either. You know, it's... Yeah. I think some of the most uh, backhanded compliments I've gotten over the years, both in academia and in yeshiva, has been that's a, a, effectively that's a nice Devar Torah, which is uh, which is a way of saying that you know how nice that minion sounds like minion, but that ain't it. Um, and it does it does hurt a little bit because you want it to be right, you want the Devar Torah to be right and not just uh, and not just cute. Um, but yeah, I, I think the the burden of proof is is high in the more rational world and that when you're playing and it's more like jazz or art um the burden is less on whether it's right or wrong and more on whether it's efficacious or aesthetically moving or something like this and that is one of the things that i find meaningful in jewish life where you can say something that is incorrect <laughs> maybe at the level of rational analysis but nonetheless um a Devar Torah, and where it's not a bad thing to say a Devar Torah, it's like no, that's the objective is to move people. I I, I agree, yeah, but I but I say perhaps different in degree um, is uh, my my um, uh, image and practice of the academic schoolroom also 
you know, you know, I've, I've always, I, I've done most of my teaching in my office. I have a nice large office at Berkeley and very small classes mostly. I mean, I've done undergraduate teaching in big rooms, but my, really the teaching that is important for me has mostly been with graduate students and in that small room. And I've th thought of it frequently. Um, I can only say this now that I'm retired, you know, the owl of Minerva flies at twilight, <laughs> that I, I thought of it as a little um, extraterritorial space <laughs> in which, and, and, and I've had Jews and Gentiles, I've had um, um, observant Jews and non-observant and anti-observant Jews, so it's not a question of it, it being a coterie, but but the 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 modes of inquiry and the, the desires for learning have uh, have been much different, I think, um, uh, than the image of you know of a nineteenth or early twentieth century um, academic inquiry. There's been a lot of passion. The Agada um, sometimes portrays heaven as a courtroom, um, imagines angels or rabbis sometimes making arguments and counter arguments before God is a kind of judge. Uh, I forget who wrote this book, but I, I've I've certainly you know seen a bunch of stuff on the the influence that sophistry played on the rabbis. Um, in terms of imagining heaven as a courtroom where, uh, per the sophists, the goal is to win the argument, but that doesn't necessarily mean to make the correct argument. Um, so there's an element of almost like manipulation or gamesmanship in all of this. How do you think about these vivid fantasies, um, not just the courtroom, but other imaginations of God as uh, a rabbi or God as, a, as somebody who learns Torah? Um what do you do with those things? And, and how do you think about it as it relates to your point that um, theology is wrong qua system? Because I, so I, I, would, I would posit that there are other ways to do theology besides systematic theology and that there is something in these representations that is theologically meaningful. It isn't, I mean, but it's hard to exactly say it's hard to give words to it, but I, I find these um, these portrayals so meaningful and, and also recognize that it, they're the kinds of things that when I've shared them with my Gentile friends, they'll, they'll give me an eyebrow raise, like there's something almost heretical. Um, and yet I don't, I don't feel that they're heretical. I feel that they're, they're sacred. There's, there's some intertwinement of our jocular um, imagining of God as, <laughs> as a judge who can be manipulated by rabbis and, uh, and my belief. So uh, yeah, I'm just curious your take. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think, I think you exaggerate to, uh, the idea of manipulation uh, here. Uh, I, I think I know what text you're thinking of, but I, I, it's so much manipulation. It's, and, I, and by the way, I, I reject your characterization of sophism. I mean, that's what the anti- anti-sophists, the philosophers that, that that's uh, described the 
Well, let me let me interject on that point because, like, we do have many texts that that, for example, suggest that being a great halachic decisor re- requires you to make arguments in both directions, right? Like, you have to be able to prove that the sharetz uh, is is pure um, in two hundred and forty nine ways. Rebbe Meir for is sort of famous for this, and so um, that for me is is sophistic because. Uh, again, it, it's it's an ambiguous idea because um, you can read it as you need to you need to learn sophistry in order to not be fooled by it. But I think there there may also be an idea that um, you need to sort of see that logic can be manipulated for any end in order not to be burdened by logic and arrive at uh, a sort of higher understanding of where the answer comes from than just logical argument. <laughs> Maybe I've gotten myself into more uh, more knots from that. Yeah, I do think it's sophist. And I, uh, and I have written about, about Rabbi Mayer as, as a sophist with re- respect to those, uh, to those texts. The question is, the, is this the characteristic, is the correct description mm. of sophism just, they want to win arguments by any means, uh, fair or foul. Um, there is, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm just going to plug, uh, plug a book of mine for the moment. Uh, uh, Socrates and the Fat Rabbis uh, it talks about these these particular questions extensively. Sophists reject also certain certain notions of truth and um, uh, advance the claims of the best argument over the perfect argument and the best result in a given situation over the ideal result, right? How can we best manage a given situation to increase human happiness. Not that we'll ever, so it's anti-utopian in a sense. So are the sophists, the sophists are pragmatic and in your view, we, we dismiss them because we're overly philosophical in our assessment of them. But if we would sort of, yep. okay. So the rabbis are like sophists, but that's a good thing is, is kind of where you come down. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, to to put if you want to have something to put on a t shirt that, or you know, a t shirt or a teacup that would that be uh, not uh, not bad on on that level. Um, so, so let me ask you, like, in there's a you know, obviously a famous uh, midrash in which Moses convinces God or persuades God. Um, not to destroy the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. Um, would you say that in a way, and and God wants Moses to do this, so God is kind of playing both sides. He's he's saying he's going to destroy them, but also suggesting to Moses that uh, it would be a bad thing if Moses doesn't change God's mind. However, we want to think about that. <laughs> um, so so Moses grabs God's garment and, and holds him until until uh, he agrees not to destroy them. Is that in a, in a way um, an argument within the Godhead, so to say, between God as philosopher who, who would destroy the Jews and God as sophist who would let them live as the least bad option, so to say? 
something like that. You know, it's 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 a dramatization of the question of justice versus mercy, and and to the extent that it's an advancement of the an imperfect but best resolution. You know, it it, it is. Um, it is pragmatic on the, uh, on that level. Okay, one one last question, which is about mysticism. Um, mysticism doesn't always lead to messianism, but often um, intense mystical uh, movements uh, have sort of bubbled up with with millenarian excitement uh, <laughs> over the years. Um, if if rabbinic Judaism is anti-utopian, if it's anti-messianic, do you think a corollary of that is also a certain resistance to mysticism, or is it possible to be a pragmatic uh, mystic, a sophistic mystic, and to contain uh, mysticism within the confines of the good enough? It's such a complicated question, right? Um, I mean. Obviously, the belief in the Messiah coming is um, is 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 a characteristic tenet of rabbinic Judaism and its and its descendants. But there is so much material in, in the Talmud uh, about um, not trying to push it not trying to figure out when it's happening, not trying to reveal when it's going to happen. You know, this is um, a sense of the, not the coming of the Messiah being dangerous, but messianism as human practice being very dangerous. Right, and, and uh, I, I won't comment in detail but I think we see the grave dangers of messianism um, as now how it relates to to mysticism also depends on what we what we think about mysticism, right? I'll tell you I'll tell you my my take on mysticism as a, almost like a cluster of of concepts, and then you can I mean obviously have a different definition, but I think. Like when you're talking about trying not to get it wrong as both rabbinic and academic virtue, I think mystics are not as worried about that. I think they are more focused on um, intuiting the truth and almost bypassing the epistemological uh, guardrails. So if, if you cannot know something by virtue of rationality, then perhaps you can know it by virtue of some kind of gnosis. And so where somebody else might exercise caution, the mystic says that they have a kind of privileged authority. Um, obviously, that allows them to be less cautious. And I think there are political sort of corollaries of that. Um, rather than minimize the downside, you're focused on the incredible upside that comes with a <laughs> mystical authority. Um, I think mystics tend to focus on oneness and overcoming boundaries at the level of the interpersonal and the ethical, um, which to me, um, again, seems to go against the rabbinic idea of putting all kinds of fences around one's practice and one's thoughts. So 
Um, it's not to say you can't be a Jewish mystic or that there aren't great contributions from mystics over uh, over the course of Jewish history, but I do think that um, it's not coincidental that collective the collective energy of scaled mysticism usually come uh, sort of bubbles up as a kind of political messianism. I'm not sure that that's true. Usually, certainly, sometimes it does, but uh, you know, um, okay. You know, the, uh, Rabbi Uranasi says, let him come. I think it's Rabbi Uranasi. Let him come and let me, let me not be there when he does. <laughs> no. um, you know, which is a functionally equivalent if you meet the Buddha on the road <laughs> kind of thing. So uh, um, I, 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 I'll just tell him one Quick story, because uh, I like stories. Um, ben Azai was and 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 another um, rabbi of the time um, were sitting and they were stringing beads of Torah's language to other beads of the Torah, and and then they were stringing that to beads of language from the prophets and from the writings and making new texts out of uh, these uh, strings of language. And fire was playing around them, all around them. So somebody went and told Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, who was the leader, came and he saw the, the, the fire playing around them and he said, uh, what's going on here? What are you doing? Are you engaged in theosophical speculation about the inner rooms of the chariot? In other words, are you trying to figure out the essence of God? And he said, no, Rabbi. We were just taking beads of Torah language and stringing them with other beads of Torah language, like, like necklaces, you know, taking a necklaces and putting them back together and with, with beads of the uh, of the prophetic language and the language of the holy writings and fire was dancing all around us and the words were as shining and as happy the word is smechim in hebrew which means happy but it also means um radiant as the day they were given at Mount Sinai. Okay, so explicit opposition to it in that text. I'm not saying that this uh, univocal, but but there's plenty of it. Explicit op uh, uh, opposition to theosophical um, uh, gnosis and attempts to 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 know, and yet the promotion of what not of the true original meaning of the text, but of the making of new texts and the kind of affective ex experience in which visions of fire take place and, and, and joy and happiness. So that's also a kind of mysticism. Beautiful. It's an excellent image, I think, to, to just leave with and absorb and contemplate. <laughs> may, we, uh, may we all know the, the joy of... Uh, of mixing texts and letters and producing our own ones. Uh, and may, may the, uh, 
may the light of such uh, creation be as if as if uh, the primal fire of Sinai. Sei gesund. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.